and welcome to Various Things. I'm Gary Lama. Today's interview is with activist Chrissy Vandenberg. Since the 1990s, Chrissy has been involved with the outreach group Vegan Action, and since 2000 has served as the executive director, leading the organization to certify many vegan products on store shelves, offering folks a researched and verifiable way to make cruelty-free choices. It was awesome to talk with Chrissy and hear her story of getting into activism, taking over the reins of Vegan Action, her hope for a planet more kind to animals, and the one thing she wants to see happen in her lifetime. I had a great time talking with Chrissy, and I think you'll enjoy listening as well. Enjoy. When did you get into veganism? That started in 93. So I moved to Richmond in 91 from Reston, Virginia, and I was already vegetarian and met up with some other folks that were involved with animal rights and food not bombs. So I then just was kind of like, all right, well, being vegetarian is not doing it for me. Once I really realized that being vegan was was the way I needed to go just for animal welfare and environmental reasons. So me and a couple of other VCU students and some other folks from Food Not Bombs, like Adam and Alyssa, Tim Barry, who I knew from Reston, and Al Copeland, um, we all started this group called Richmond Animal Rights Network, and we did a couple of different things. Like we would have some fur demos, anti-circus demos, and anti-vivisection and we would do a lot of things around the VCU campus, obviously trying to, you know, reach out to the students as much as we could. And so that's how I got involved in activism and just kind of took veganism beyond just my, you know, personal diet and lifestyle. I also need to give credit to Taylor Steele because when I also first got involved was dating the drummer in Four Walls Falling and went on a couple of tours with them. And Taylor was the first vegan I had ever met. Oh, wow. And um, yeah, yeah. So he was definitely a really positive influence for me, which was really cool. So yeah, that's, that's kind of how the journey began. And I remember it's really, it's so wild to think of that like learning about vegan action in some zine and writing to order a t-shirt, I think that was in like 96. So Vegan Action was it started in Berkeley, California. So then um, I got just more and more involved in activism. And I was like, I need to move to the Bay Area because that's where it is. That's what's up. And so right. I moved to Oakland in 98 and started volunteering with Vegan Action. And for you, when you started, so when you met Taylor, you you weren't already vegan. You were already vegetarian when you met Taylor. Right. I was vegetarian and like started thinking, okay, I really need to be, I need to really do this vegan thing. And then meeting, like actually meeting someone and like being on tour with them and seeing someone. Do, and I mean, I know it sounds really kind of trivial, but like just seeing someone do it. I was like, oh, okay, he that's that's totally doable. And of course, you know, back in the 90s, it wasn't as easy to go out to eat and travel around and find vegan options, but he he made it work. And I was and so I was like, okay, this is this is doable. 
that you know that's i think a thing that should kind of be like impressed upon folks like for younger folks who are listening um what being vegan was like in the 90s because mm-hmm. right. it, there really wasn't <laughs> like a lot of products out there um that were like a lot of it was like mistakenly vegan <laughs> like very few things were like right. advertised as vegan and yeah also like actually just meeting vegans like i remember when uh like path of resistance played at like the biograph and being like amazed like this whole band's vegan <laughs> like that was just such a weird right right thing to yeah. see you know yeah i really were trying to get the biograph to have veggie hot dogs <laughs> oh they did they ended up having them yeah yeah they did yeah yeah you know, we'd come down there. I'd just gone vegan, and mm-hmm. it was one of the few places that you could actually get something, and they actually tasted good. I think they were, like, really cheap, too. I think they were, like, a yeah. dollar or something. Yeah, exactly. At yeah, point, yeah. it wasn't, like, going to the regular grocery store to get anything. Right. It was, like, maybe there was one frozen veggie burger at the grocery store, but, you know, we had to shop at either Grace Place, that market, or there mm-hmm. was, like, this little co-op on I think it was on Main Street and then there was like overpriced Elba Thompson's but it was like super super tiny it was definitely a challenge in the 90s when you got out there to vegan action what exactly kind of what what kind of activism were they doing really so they were also doing a lot of stuff on the UC Berkeley campus so the two guys that started vegan action were UC Berkeley students at the time. And so they started the organization to get the cafeteria to offer vegan options for students. And then they kind of expanded to promote veganism just throughout the community and like we're passing out free samples and sharing information about all of the animal research that was going on at UC Berkeley. So they were doing a lot of tabling and trying to get people to try vegan food for the first time. So it was like doing person to person stuff as well as like working against institutions and and that kind of thing. So it was kind of like a couple of focuses, like advocacy and like policy yeah. activism. Exactly. And what was your focus in it? Like what what was your interest? Was it more in like the person to person or the policy side of it? For me it was definitely more of the person to person, like wanting to go to the demonstrations and doing the tabling. That just felt I mean and you know I under, of course I recognize then and still do that the policy part is really important, but I just and I still feel this way now that just the opportunity to talk to people one on one is just so important because I know that's what has a big impact on people. I mean, for a lot of people, it's seeing a documentary or maybe reading an article or, you know, something like that. But for a lot of people, it really is having a conversation with someone else and Mm -hmm. kind of getting an understanding and not being judged or made to feel like an asshole. Right. And then that's a weird thing because people... Like, I remember when I went vegan, a lot of my friends had this weird reaction of, like, you think you're better than us. And it was just so weird. I was like, no, I don't. Like, like people take that stuff in in a really weird way. Like, I've never done anything else in my life that's been received that way. Right. Yeah, it's an automatic – it's automatically defensive when you're like, I just – 
it just told you what my food choices are here. And that suddenly it's like, right. oh my gosh. I think a big part of that stems from the majority of people, I think subconsciously do feel bad about it because yes. more and more people really have like understand what's going on in factory farming and know that we don't have to or need to eat animals or animal products. You know, and a lot of us are just following habits, conveniences, routines, you know, whatever, or the taste. It's, it's, I mean, and I, I tell people that all the time. I'm like, I grew up eating animals and animal products, and I loved the taste of them. That's not why I stopped eating them. You know, it can be hard to give up. So I, I get it. Isn't that what's called cognitive dissonance, where you have yeah. like kind of like two things in your head, like one, this is bad, but also... <laughs> You like the taste. So it's like that fight exactly. of, of those two things. That's a hard thing, I think, for people to – plus, you know, there's moral implications to it, you know, ethical implications, like the way people construct their lives and stuff like this. And sometimes I almost wonder if, if, if it's also like realizing that they have been wrong, not yeah. so much as like looking at future, but almost at, at like looking at the path of their lives and people they love, too, because – I mean, that was a thing when uh, I went that, um, you know, me, me and my mom had a conversation where she was like, well, do you think I'm a murderer? <laughs> and, and like, right, it's a hard right. conversation to have. <laughs> yeah. Right. It is. It's, and also, you know, I have, a, I have some really good friends that are ex-vegans, and that really hurts my heart because it's like, wow, you – no, you know, you took the time to really know and understand and you made a decision for, you know, like you said, ethical and moral reasons and then stopped doing it. And I am still friends with them and I still love them, but it does still hurt my heart, you know, so it's definitely difficult. I guess it's more disappointing than anything. But, you know, I think for a lot of people, they think it's a slippery slope, like, oh, you know, it's never ending. Once I do that, then, you know, I have to stop driving and then I have to stop using plastic or I don't know. I think that some people are just afraid to even take that first step because they feel like, oh, maybe I can never do it well enough or maybe I can't do it right. Yeah, it's basically like because I can't do everything perfectly, I'll mm -hmm. do nothing. Right. And the problem with that is, is that if you applied that tape, anything like i mean going to school for instance like from when you're in elementary school like who would go to school right. and apply that art that argument that like well i'm not gonna be a good at gym class so might as well right not learn so math. i'm not gonna <laughs> yeah i mean you know if you if you dive if you dive real deep into human behavior and the choices that we make every day you know we are all making some choices that are harmful and that can be overwhelming and that can be really depressing. I think it's just important to try to look at the big picture and think, you know, what what are reasonable sacrifices that I can make? What are reasonable choices I can make that I still have a good quality of life, but I can reduce the amount of harm, suffering and environmental degradation as much as possible. And, you know, like collectively how 20 of us, let's say, for example, collectively, how 20 people spend their money on food in a week has an amazing impact, you know, because it's all about supply and demand. 
So right. when you think about just yourself and you're like, oh, does it really matter? You know, but even if you if it's just as small as thinking about 20 people that, you know, if that person when they're spending money in a week and what they're choosing to buy to eat, that that's huge because essentially it's sending a message of I want someone to keep growing asparagus and lentils or I want someone to keep forcing cows to give birth to other cows so I can have their milk. Right. That dollar makes a big difference. I mean, people right. look at those sheets at the end of each quarter and they're like, oh, right. this isn't working. We got to do something else. And I think it's really kind of telling and, and that how many products now are being offered by like everyone. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, the fact that like meat and dairy companies are getting into the plant-based product world says a lot. And of course, they're not doing it for ethical reasons. They're doing it for monetary reasons, but that's fine. It's still saying like, okay, they're seeing a cut in the product they were originally making and they want to make a profit where the demand is. That's huge. That's, that's also sustainability. Like I remember... You know, as a vegan, you, you realize that, like, if everyone ate animals, we wouldn't have the resources earthwise to provide for everyone to have that kind of lifestyle. Right. And I think the companies exactly. are realizing, like, there is a finite supply. If we start, you know, making vegetable-based proteins, like, it's almost like right. printing money. I think right. that's kind of the angle they're getting into it of, like, this is going to have to happen at some point um, just from the – you know, supply side of it. Um, exactly. I well, still so, am amazed by it. Like, you know, ahead. when I think back to like the nineties and then think about where things are now, it's incredible. And it's really cool to see everything going in this positive direction. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Um, so jumping back to um, you and Bert. So when you got involved with vegan action out there, um, mm -hmm. you were doing like, Personal, personal work. How did that transform into you back in Richmond doing <laughs> right. what you do now? So I was working in San Francisco for this nonprofit that this is a very like super specific need that was being met, but it was really big for San Francisco. So there was a very large HIV AIDS population that was thriving and surviving from the 80s and 90s. And so this nonprofit specifically was helping these folks take care of their companion animals, mostly financially. So a lot of these folks didn't have family members, uh, lost partners, and were starting to become, you know, older in their life. And their companions, almost always dogs or cats, were their only love and their only companion. So this organization, this nonprofit, it was called Pets Are Wonderful Support, specifically was helping these folks take care of their animals. So we helped provide food and litter. There was actually this huge um, pet food bank that we had that was amazing. And we would like take their pets to their um, vet appointments for them. So that was my full-time job. And then I did- well, How was that funded? All by amazing donors. The food bank was all donations, which was a really amazing. So most of the donations came from like all of these grocery stores around the Bay Area. It was like ripped 
broken bags of food. And then we would just, we got tons of donations. It was really amazing. This organization was so well-funded. It was, it, it still exists. It's still, it's amazing. They have expanded now to helping people that are um, surviving cancer. So they are wow. now helping two, two populations, which is really great. And then I swear I'm getting somewhere with this. So I was living in this big house in Oakland with um, six other people. Started out with all these folks I knew from Virginia. Somebody who had first started living in this house made the decision that if you moved out, you had to replace yourself. So that's, of course, when everyone was on Craigslist. So suddenly, after like a year or so, when I'm living there, year and a half, people are replacing themselves. And then suddenly there's people living there that I don't really know that well. So I was like, ah, I think I kind of need to move out. So then it's 1999 and it's the dot-com boom going on. So I was like trying to find a place to live and it was like insane. So I would like show up to go see these one bedroom apartments and there would be a line of like 50 people waiting to see a part. It was, it was just crazy. Oh my God. It just, it was so wild. And like people were there ready with like cash and checks because it was so oh. competitive to find a place to live. Wow. And I was just like, I'm not sure what to do. So I was like trying to find other houses to live in. And anyway, this all relates. So then the director of vegan action. So I was like volunteering at vegan action all the time. I was super involved. Then the director who was an attorney got a job in Vegas and it was like, what do you think about taking over vegan action? And I was like, um, I don't know. I'm trying to figure out what I'm going to do and where I'm living. I, I don't know. And I was like, I'm actually thinking about maybe moving back to Richmond because of course Richmond was so cheap and all my mm -hmm. friends were here. So he was like, well, do you, you could take vegan action with you if you're, you know, if you're up for it. And so I was like, okay, sure. Why not? So I moved back to Richmond in 2000 and brought Vegan Action with me. So I moved back to Richmond into this tiny little apartment on Grace and Boulevard with my two dogs and my cat and Vegan Action. And when you inherited that, like basically, I mean, what did you get? Did you just get like a... <laughs> Like like a structure, <laughs> like an old, I mean, like a old ass an old ass computer and right? some files and yeah, it, vegan action wasn't super big then. Um, so we just started the certification campaign with the certified vegan logo. Like it would just that the the logo had just gotten trademarked, so we had just started reaching out to companies asking them if they would be willing to put this logo on their vegan products. Oh, but wow. Vegan Action was still pretty small at that point. It was still just, I mean, it was a national organization, but it was still mostly like just focused on the Bay Area. The good news is, is that before I moved, two really awesome volunteers that were working at Vegan Action in Berkeley, Erin um, and her boyfriend, Andy, they were both at UC Berkeley, and they started this group called Berkeley Organization for Animal Advocacy. So they were able to kind of still keep up what Vegan Action was doing right around that area when once I moved. So that was oh, a cool. really nice relief. Yeah. So I felt like, you know, that we weren't leaving a hole. There was at least, like, still something going on. 
so I just continued to work full time and do all these other things and then try to keep up with vegan action as much as possible. So at that point, was it transforming more into doing like the certification of, of products? It was. And then, you know, trying to do tabling events. So then I started going to like zine festivals, festivals on college campuses and other vegetarian festivals. And so then it was like tabling at, at events and then doing the certification campaign. And so it was me like calling and faxing, which makes me laugh to think about now, is I was like calling and faxing companies and ask, like begging them to please put the Certified Vegan logo on their product. Yeah, I was going to ask, so like, was, what was the pitch like for that? Because like... <laughs> right. Yeah, it wasn't out there yet. So, well, first of all, it, we were not asking anyone to pay money. So we, it was for free. Mm-hmm. So I would like find these smaller mom and pop vegan companies and was like, hey, this is going to be a great marketing tool. How would you like to put this logo on your product? It was slow moving. It was Were people really hesitant? Or... Okay, so the catch was like, well, we already have packaging. We'd have to update our packaging and with the printers. Right. And so I guess I guess they, you know, they weren't able to really see the value yet. So maybe the the work to change their packaging didn't seem worth it. And then also in the early 2000s, there just wasn't quite the demand for vegan products yet. Back really. then, the grocers actually used to like label, like the label, like the price label sometimes. Like, like I remember the stores here, like sometimes they would put like, yeah. a, you know, a V if it was vegan or if it was like gluten-free, right. they put like GF. What changed that actually like started making companies come mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. y'all? So I, I feel like it really started happening and like there was a slow buildup, but like it really seemed like it was like 2008 or 2009 when it really started to happen. And so it was just kind of the same time that veganism was starting to become normalized. Like it wasn't this fringe kind of thing. It was something that more and more people were starting to understand and appreciate and not be so afraid of. You know, I'm still kind of curious, like what, what changed, what happened? Um, You know, what factors really all came together to sort of create that dynamic? I mean, definitely social media played a really positive role. And I think just people seeing documentaries and getting more information and really starting to realize the health impacts, the environmental impacts, and of course, the horrible impacts of raising animals in factory farming settings for food. And so then like athletes start jumping on board and then celebrities start jumping on board and then people are like, oh, okay quote unquote, normal people are doing this. So it started kind of catching on. And that was kind of part of what Vegan Action always wanted to do, even before I got involved, was like normalize veganism. Like this isn't a weird, wacky thing. Like it's normal to want to eat things that are healthy for you. It's normal to want to eat things that don't cause unnecessary harm or degradation of the environment. It's not weird and wacky, you know, Um, it it just finally got this really positive momentum. 
you know, then like dietitians and nutritionists started being like, oh, yeah, there is a way to do this. But, oh, okay, this can be healthy. And so just like all of these other areas started recognizing it and accepting it. Where, you know, on one hand, you're like annoyed because it's like, why did it take all of that? But then on mm -hmm. the other hand, it's like, well, obviously that's what some people needed. Well, I, I, mean? I think it probably was like the... the like that democratization of media that kind of happened around that time, like the availability of people to through social media and stuff like that, the ability of people to share videos, because, you know, it was one of those things that like in like punk culture and stuff. Once someone saw one of those videos of like vivisection or um, a slaughterhouse, almost everybody that saw that went vegan, at least for some <laughs> period yeah. of time after seeing something like that. But we couldn't share that outside of these circles because there wasn't a way like, you know, because of right. physical media and stuff. And it might have just been that of like, it just there's a human reaction to seeing pain and suffering that yeah. is very hard to just ignore. And even if it's easily delivered on uh, Facebook, like it, it, it still resonates with you. What initially struck me and got me on the path was I was at this March in DC when I was in high school and ended up getting a PETA pamphlet on what happens to cows when they're raised for food. And I was like, what the fuck? This is disgusting. And that's what made me become vegetarian. And then I started getting other information from, you know, because PETA was like way ahead of the game mm -hmm. with getting literature out. And, you know, I was definitely in the punk scene in, in high school. And I was like, already kind of listening to the music and already becoming a critical thinker. And that brings up an interesting thing because like, you know, for some folks, veganism, just like anything else that people get into, they'll kind of get like kind of territorial, they'll get attached to it because it becomes something like kind mm -hmm. of, of their lifestyle or something. Um, mm -hmm. Did you guys get any pushback as this kind of grew? If you're like certifying like some of the more traditional food companies, did you guys get like any kind oh, yeah. of flack for doing that? Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And I think, um, I think appropriately so, you know, I mean, I appreciate, I appreciate that, that people want to have those conversations, you know, in the last like seven years, we have started working with really big multinational companies. The first was Ben and Jerry's reached out to us to get their, non-dairy ice cream certified and they had just been bought out by Unilever. So Unilever is this huge multinational company that owns tons of brands. Most of them are like personal care products and, you know, like dish liquid and stuff like that. So we had a lot of conversations about like, how do we feel about this? Because some of the brands that they have, they still do animal testing and you know, they're just this big conglomerate and like, do we want to, like, is this the pool that we want to jump into? And we ultimately decided, yes, that we think that it benefited the greater good, that having more vegan products in the marketplace is beneficial. Having the certified vegan logo on there is beneficial. And so we decided to go for it. And since then, we have certified Nestle Toll House chocolate chips and oh, wow. some Conagra stuff. So it was definitely a difficult 
decision every time because like, you know, there's some major issues with Nestle and their acquisition of water and then um, their practices of what farms they're buying cocoa from. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, it's like a Chumbawamba uh, EP of like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. Right. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. But that's that thing of like, you know, kind of with that, if you can't do it perfectly, don't do anything at all. I mean, if you start right. to get on that path of like, well, you know, they also make these products too. Mm-hmm. Then you get stuck in this thing where like you might just throw the whole thing in the trash because like right. something's connected to something. And, and it really, you have to make these moral kind of judgments of like, where is the greater good kind of going to occur? Yeah. Um, and that's yeah. always fascinating for me to learn from folks where, where they're, drawing these lines and you know you just make these choices of like okay well this is where you know this benefit is is worth it you know this availability pushing forward this message right. and this kind of thing you can navigate that in a good way you know so that's like yeah interesting how you were able to do that as far as when it gets certified what do y'all do to do that do you receive a product and like look over it how does that exactly work yeah. So the the company that's applying has to send us two documents for every ingredient that's in the product. And those those documents have to come straight from the manufacturer. So we have to do all this verification to confirm that every ingredient is not animal derived and every ingredient hasn't been tested on animals since the year 2000. So it takes a lot of time. And we don't always get the exact documents we want. So then there's often a lot of back and forth where we're like, well, actually, we need this from the manufacturer. This didn't work. This one isn't clear enough. We also reject some applications because they don't meet our criteria or, you know, and they're, they're like, well, but they last tested this in 2013. Can't you guys take it? And we're like, no, we can't. So it's a really specific, detailed process that they have to go through in order to get products approved. And And these documents, are they like FDA documents or something or? They're, um, they are coming from the manufacturer. Some of them are OSHA documents and and some of them are proprietary. So some of them are classified, um, but they are straight from the manufacturer. And that's such a weird thing too nowadays too, because a lot a lot of sharing of like facilities and and like not many people mm-hmm. just make their own thing. Like everything's kind of coming right everywhere. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. But yeah, we have to be detectives <laughs> sometimes and like really have to dig around and and do a lot of work. So yeah, there are five full time people that just do certification applications now. Oh wow! Which is amazing. Yeah, it's so the demand is that high. It used to be just me trying to scramble, like work a full-time job and then like process these applications before and after work. And then now it's so successful and it's so it's doing so well that there's five full-time people. How long so, were you doing it just by yourself? Like what year did oh you gosh. stop doing that? Um, I So I finally hired one person in 2008 to help me. And then slowly started hiring additional people 
So then it was like the two of us for quite a few years. And then it was three people for a while. Mm. And then I went from three to five. But it took a while because, okay, so as I mentioned to you a while ago, originally companies didn't have to pay anything to use the logo. So right. then we started charging. So in 2005, we started charging. And we have a sliding scale based on how much the company makes. So if it's a small mom and pop, they don't they don't have to pay very much. But if it's like one of right, these big, right. you know, corporations, then they pay a lot. So that's what allows us to pay staff. Is that solely where it comes from? Yes. All of the staff are paid from the money that comes in from certification. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's amazing. Wow. I never would have imagined that this would be my full-time job. The whole time I was doing vegan action, I never, I didn't get paid from, for doing vegan action until 2007. And that was part-time. I was part-time forever. I was like working at Lamplighter and working all kinds of different places. I was worked at Lewis Ginter Botanical Garden and I was teaching. I was doing all kinds of different things. What was your educational so background? Just curious. Like, like you, yeah. you, you gone out there to work with, um, in San Francisco, you'd gone out there to work with mm -hmm. that group doing the companion animals. Did you yeah. go to college to like work in like social policy or something or? No, I, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I went to VCU to get my, so I got my bachelor's degree in biology and I worked at an animal hospital all through undergrad. And I was like, this is definitely not what I want to do. I wanted to be an advocate. And I was like, you know, not to diss but veterinarians, but I was just like, this is just giving animals shots and surgeries all day. Like, this is not, this is not the job for me. So, you know, I just always had this idea that this was a really great way to help animals, which again, it's important being a, you know, a caring, loving veterinarian is important, but that's just, I realized was not for me. I enjoyed working there though. I learned a lot about animals and, and helping to take care of them, but I definitely got more interested in sociology. So when I moved back to Richmond in 2002, I went back to VCU for graduate school in sociology. Cool. Um, yeah, which I just loved so much. So I was doing that and working and then squeezing vegan action in wherever I could. But again, vegan action wasn't, it wasn't a lot of work yet at that time. Well, it's amazing that you took it. I mean, imagine what would happen if, if you. Oh my gosh. <laughs> right. I know. I wonder about that sometimes. And I think it maybe just wouldn't still be around. I don't know. It's hard to, it's hard to imagine, but I'm not sure. And so do you still, yeah. do you still table and stuff like that or, or, or. Yeah. We haven't, of course, since the pandemic, but. Right. We still do lots of tabling as much as we can at, you know, different festivals and events. And we, of course, are really involved with the Richmond Vegetarian Festival. And we do a lot of documentary screenings at universities. For a while we were screening Cowspiracy and then we were screening Dominion which is a really hard one to watch. Right. If you already know what's going on, you don't need to watch it. Right. But for folks that don't know what's going on, it covers everything. It covers animals for food, for entertainment, vivisection, for everything. It covers it all. Yeah. It's intense, but it's really, really well done. So, yeah. So we still, we still 
try to do get as much, you know, face time out in the community as we can. So the certification campaign is huge. You know, it definitely helps fund our organization. We still get grants and donations, of course, but um, we still want to be out and, you know, get that face-to-face as much as possible. It's been so hard not doing that the last year. Personally, are you hopeful for the future of animal welfare in this world? Mm. That's a great question. I am. I am hopeful. Um, I do see more and more people making better choices. I, I do. I I do see more people learning about where food comes from and caring more. I do also see the reality that you mentioned a while ago of people realizing that raising animals for food is becoming less and less sustainable. And farmers are starting to realize that and are transitioning to growing and producing other things. So that definitely is giving me hope. The one thing I really would love to see in my lifetime, which would be huge. This is the one thing that could really change everything. And it's to remove subsidies on animal products. So um, meat, dairy, and eggs, no one pays the true cost of those when they purchase them. Now, there was a time when the government, and it was right after the Great Depression, wanted to help farmers so they could not go into bankruptcy. Um, But these subsidies are no longer needed and in some cases actually harm the farmer. And you've probably heard stories of like farmers dumping their milk or farmers harvesting their corn and it just gets thrown away because of these subsidies and this whole game of this false price of of food really has messed things up. So farmers don't even get to decide what they make anymore. So it's this really bizarre game that doesn't benefit anyone anymore except the consumer. And the irony of that is the consumer is purchasing more dairy products and egg products and meat products. And we have some of the most unhealthiest people in the world, in the United States, because of the overconsumption of all of these animal products, because they're so damn cheap. It's harming everyone. And so if we could remove subsidies and a gallon of milk was actually $7, which is about what it should be when you take into account everything that goes into it, you know, or a carton of eggs should be about five, five fifty, then people would consume so much less. The demand would decrease tremendously. And I don't believe that this is going to harm anyone. You know, basic fruits, vegetables, and grains are really cheap. They're really cheap. So the argument that this is going to harm low-income folks is bullshit. It's very, very reasonable and easy to eat a plant-based diet and it's not expensive. I mean, that's the thing that, you know, I I would hear is that, um, you you know, like if you go into like 7-Eleven or something like this, they've got a hot dog there for a dollar that has like probably 70 different things in it. But if you were to 
have lettuce, just lettuce there or something, it would cost like a tremendous amount more because it's closer to the price of what it actually is. But then it's also less demand for it. So then its price is even a little higher. Um, you, right. you get up in these weird like supply things where it keeps fueling the same behavior over and over again. Yes. Yeah. And okay. Yeah. If that's a perfect example. Two bananas at Seven Eleven is a dollar nine, but a hot dog is ninety nine cents. Right, and the caloric cost. Oh my I mean, god! If you look at what's right. in a hot dog, the caloric cost is so. I mean, the water for the animals to eat, the the vegetation, yeah. all, all this stuff, versus a freaking banana. <laughs> right. Know, like, yeah. Yeah. And it, it creates this so, idea that there's. You know, like there was a few years ago, I started hearing these things about, you know, veganism being something more for privileged folks to do and this kind of thing. And it's kind of been fueled by that that um, subsidy thing of like it is much more affordable to buy like a one dollar pizza right. than it is is to buy something healthier. But yeah, you're right. It is definitely because of the subsidies. Wow. Do you think they'll ever get rid of them? You know, there are lobbying efforts right now. I mean, going up against big ag is just, it feels, it feels impossible, but Mm -hmm. I want to believe it's possible. And actually Cory Booker is the first person that is really being vocal about this and really addressing it. Um, right. There is a nonprofit organization called Vegan Justice League that specifically is hiring and paying lobbyists to work on just this very issue. So I really want to believe it's possible, but you know, it's really it's it's hard to imagine. I mean, to be realistic, but if we could start to get to the point of making it really clear how harmful it is. The taxpayers are paying these subsidies 10 times over because, you know, not only are we paying the these subsidies for the farmers, but all of the environmental costs and then all of the healthcare costs of all of the people that are getting sick from all of right. this. And it's just like never ending externalities is is what what it's called so it's you know more than just the the one time of paying the subsidies that that's my big my big hope is is putting a lot of wishing into that one big piece because you know while we're trying to chop away at getting folks to make the right decision for the right reason the temptation of cheap and convenient is is strong. You know, when, when you have $5 in your pocket and you're hungry for lunch and you can go through the drive-thru at Burger King and get, you know, two Whoppers, that's hard to turn down because it's going to fill you up and it tastes good. It's fat. It's, you know, it's oily. It's, it's meaty, you know, and as opposed to, okay, wait, I'm actually going to run by the grocery store real quick and buy a whole bunch of stuff to make this amazing salad, you know? with grains and legumes. And so it's like sometimes people have to be forced into making better choices. And I don't feel bad about saying that at all. That's, that's, that's what happened with segregation. Conversely, they're being forced into this decision too, just because no one's 
fighting for it. And that's the thing that people maybe should realize is that we are forced to live in this world where things are priced like this. Like the the most yes. unhealthy food is cheap. Yes, exactly. And we live in a, a country that disproportionately treats people of color. Um, well, we you know we that's a whole nother conversation. So right. these are the folks that are more likely to die of diabetes, cancer, heart disease. And a lot of that has to do with access to healthy, affordable food and not having a grocery store nearby in the neighborhood that you can get, you know, so if you're going to a convenience store to buy your meals or there's a fast food place around the corner, then that's what you're eating. But this is also killing people. It's literally killing people early. Yeah, I've been pretty poor for the last probably 20 years of my life. And the first time I started going to the doctor's office that I go to, I, I, I noticed that the posters on the wall, they weren't these ads for drugs. They were like diabetes posters, like reminding you to like check your feet, like see if you have mm-hmm. any wounds. Because these are the things that poor people in this country, they yeah. have to deal with. And it's right because of this, the way we eat. You know, it, it's because yeah. of the, the way these things are structured. Yeah, that's – I wouldn't have guessed that that would be the thing that – I mean, it, it totally makes sense, though, that that's, like, your big wish there. Because, like, mm-hmm. yeah, that is the – that's a huge structural inequality in, in this country. Do you know if other countries don't do that? Like, I mean, is is America kind of unique in, in having those subsidies for animal products? Yeah, so other other countries have done subsidies – in special circumstances, but don't mm-hmm. have these long-standing ones that just kind of went into the books and have stayed for decades. But yeah, America is unique with this like intense big ag lobbying controlling the market the way it does. It's it's unlike anywhere else. What advice would you have for someone that uh you know, wanted to get into activism, wanted to try and, and do something to make the world a, a better place. Um, yeah. What advice would you give to them? I'm glad you asked. The first thing I want to say is that doing any good is always good. And I believe this in my heart of hearts that you don't have to be 100% vegan all the time. There isn't a card there isn't the vegan police and it doesn't have to be all or nothing going back to what you and I were talking about in the very beginning that, you know, being vegan 90% of the time is huge. That has a major impact. Um, So just again, thinking about the choices that we make every day and trying to make the best ones as often as possible is really important and not just saying, fuck it. I can't do this. That's really, really, really big. That's really important. And getting into activism in whatever way works. You know, not everybody is into tabling. I love tabling. I love talking to people. Um, but not everybody is. Some folks are shy. Some some folks want to do that differently. Um, and sometimes that could be sharing information on social media. Or it might just be talking about it with friends and family. But the most important piece is 
you know, not being judgmental and not being elitist and just being really approachable. And of course, right now, because of COVID, there mm-hmm. really isn't much in-person activism, but there's a lot we can do on social media. And sometimes it is sharing links to some of those documentaries and sharing links to articles, blogs, uh, recommending really awesome books that have been inspiring and really encouraging life changes. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, what we do in our personal life over a period of time has a really big impact. And trying to maintain a positive attitude as much as as much as we can. It's a it's a it's a tough world we're living in. And there is a lot of awful things happening in the world. There's a lot of suffering. And I think that trying to really do our part and minimize that as much as we can is really important. That's another thing too, is you've been doing this for a while, like being an activist. And yeah. you know, I I've seen a lot of folks get into stuff, go through about five years and just burn the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And it's not for lack yeah. of heart. It's maybe right. for lack of personal boundaries. <laughs> you know, like definitely when to like say, Hey, I need an off day. <laughs> like Right. Right. Absolutely. Some of the folks that dive in and go real hard, real fast, do do burn out and get and get really overwhelmed. And I, I can understand how that happens. And it is it is important to to have that self-care and maintain, like you said, some boundaries and be able to step back and 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 see some good, you know, and and see some positivity and be around some other folks that are that are feeling positive and good about things. And that concludes my interview with Chrissy Vandenberg. I would like to thank Chrissy for taking the time to talk with me. You can find out more about her work on the web by going to vegan.org or by going to Vegan Action on Facebook or Vegan.org on Instagram. For more episodes like this, check out our podcast at variousthingspodcast.com or by searching Various Things on podcasting apps. Thanks for listening.